morning, everyone. How's everybody doing? Good. It's nice to see everyone. Hey, thanks so much for being here. Uh, it's been an awesome day. I'm, I can't wait. To, I'm, if you don't know me, my name is John. I'm one of the pastors here. I'm able to serve as a student pastor here. So a lot of my time is hanging out with students, which I love. So a lot of your faces, I don't get to see a lot. So I can't wait to share what God has uh, just laid on my heart to share with you this morning. So let's just jump right in. Um, growing up, I had the same. I went to school just like almost every single other person did, right? Uh, but my education was a little bit different, and it was different in this fact. My mom was actually a part of education my whole life. Like, my whole education career, she was in education. So when I was in elementary school, she was a teacher at a different school. But when I became in middle school, when I grew up 6th, 7th, 8th grade, my mom actually became my middle school principal. And so as you can imagine, that has its ups and it has its downs. The top two things about having your mom as principal, number one, unlimited gym access. I mean, if there wasn't uh, school going on, if there wasn't teams, if there wasn't class, if there wasn't anything like that going on, I got to play basketball, I got to play football, indoor football, do whatever I want in the gym. It was awesome. Definitely number one. Number two is every day on the way to lunch, I was able to swing by the concession stand and get a candy bar and a soda. It was amazing. I'd always get to lunch. He'd be like, where'd you get that? Be like, haha, I'm principal's kid. Haha. You know what I mean? That was awesome. It was amazing. Top two best parts of having your mom as principal. Um, I wouldn't change, in all seriousness, I wouldn't change that for anything. It made those awkward years a little bit less awkward. But like I said, it definitely had its downsides, right? As you can imagine, having your mom as your principal might have a little bit of a little swings, little hard parts. Top two worst parts. Number one, I could never lie about my report cards. It, it never worked. Not once. I couldn't say, my teacher didn't give it to me. I couldn't say, she didn't grade that yet. No, she could literally go and look at it. Couldn't get away with that. Number two, and here's the worst part, absolute worst part. She knew I was in trouble before I ever knew I was in trouble. I mean, I'm being serious. No matter what, I, I felt like I couldn't get away with anything. No matter what I did, she knew it before anything ever happened. And let me tell you, there's something scary about when you're sitting in class and you talk back to teacher, you mess up, or you do something wrong, and the teacher doesn't say, I'm missing you to ISS, or teacher doesn't say, I'm missing you to the principal. She says, do I need to call your mom? There's, I'm telling you, there's something scary about that. In all seriousness, uh, my mom's discipline style, the kind of discipline that she has, she's more of a person that like, she does, she's not going to scream at you. She's not going to yell. She's not going to lose her temper. She's more going to be like, you know you're wrong, right? She's going to say, you're better than the way you're acting. You know that. Is there any other parents like that? Any others? in the Some? Okay. If you raise your hand, you're probably the parent that says this phrase, and every kid hates this phrase. I'm not mad. I'm disappointed. That's the worst. That's the worst. I'm telling you. The worst part, and I'll say this, the worst part about getting in trouble, it wasn't the punishment. It was the anticipation of the punishment. So if I got in trouble in like first period, I knew the rest of the day, all I'm going to be thinking about is, I got to go see my mom afterwards and I'm going to get in trouble. She's going to take my phone. You know, I, the whole time dreading it was the worst part of getting in trouble. Dread is a real feeling we all suffer with, isn't it? Yeah. Anyone ever go through dread where you know that something bad's going to happen? You know something in your future that you don't want to happen is going to happen and you really can't change it. You just got to deal with it and wait till you get there. That's one of the worst feelings that we ever go through. Maybe you have a doctor's appointment. Maybe you have a surgery in the future, and you're dreading it because you don't want to know the results. Maybe you have to have a really tough conversation with that coworker that drives you up a wall, and you're like, I don't want to talk to them. I don't want to go through that. Or maybe your student was one of the ones that are graduating up here today, or maybe they will be in a couple years, and you're dreading them going to college. Not because you dread success for them. You dread them just to leave you, to leave home, you know? We all go through dread. We all go through feelings 
we're like, I really don't want that to happen. We all go through those. And so today we're going to talk about something very similar to that. We're going to talk about how Jesus went through this exact same feeling just on an escalated level. So we're going to talk about Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. Uh, Before we get there, though, I kind of want to set the scene of what happens right before he gets to the garden. So Jesus and his disciples are at the Last Supper. If you don't know, the Last Supper is where we learn uh, communion. It's where we learn the principle of communion, the importance of taking the bread, taking the cup in remembrance of Jesus' sacrifice. So the Last Supper happens, and great things happen there, but also some other not-so-great things happen right at the Last Supper. We learn that Jesus had two disciples that are actually going to kind of, they're going to let him down. He had Judas, who was going to betray him for 30 pieces of silver, and he had Peter, who was going to deny him three times. So Jesus and his disciples, all that happens at the Last Supper, then they go and they move forward towards the Garden of Gethsemane. And on their way to the Garden, the Bible says they're actually singing praises of worship songs, or singing hymns, they're praising God. And so we get there, they get to the Garden, he has all his disciples wait, and then we're going to pick up right there in Matthew 26, 37 through 39. Here's what it says. It says, And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, that's John and James, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to the point of death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And so what's happening here? Jesus gets to the Garden of Gethsemane. He's going through, and it says we we see him go through some pretty hard emotions, right? We see him go through some pretty hard feelings. I, I really want you to understand what he's going through. First, he says he's sorrowful. He's troubled. He's feeling sad. He, you know that feeling when you're kind of feeling a little bit down. And then he tells his disciples, I'm in point of agony to the point of death. You ever been there? I, if something doesn't change, I'm going to die. That's what he's going through. He's agonizing to the point of death. And then it says he literally falls on his face from agony, and he prayers that prayer. That prayer we've heard so many times, not take this cup from me, but not my, your, if not my will, but your will anyway. And so when we read that phrase, if you're like me, sometimes when you read the Bible, when you read Scripture, you can come away with a little bit more questions, right? Sometimes when you read, we'd be like, what does that really mean? So when he says, take this cup from me, I started wondering, well, what does that really mean? Well, to answer that, we have to go back to the Old Testament, find different Scriptures that talk about cup, talk about the way the cups, what cups are referenced to in the Old Testament. So when you go through the Old Testament, we see two different references for a cup. Number one is a cup of blessing or a cup of salvation. That's found in Psalms 116.13. It says, I will lift the cup of salvation and call on the name of the Lord. The second cup that we see a lot of times through the Old Testament is the cup of humiliation or the cup of loneliness. One verse that highlights that is Ezekiel 23. It says, you shall drink your sister's cup. You will be filled with drunkenness and sorrow, a cup of horror and desolation. So you see, the two main ways that we see reference to as a cup in the Old Testament is a cup of salvation and blessing, and then a cup of, of humiliation and of isolation, of loneliness, of sorrow. I don't know about you, but that sounds a lot like Jesus' situation here, right? Jesus knows what's coming. When he's in the garden, he's dreading what's happening. He knows what's coming. He knows in the future he's going to be arrested, which is going to lead to his death. It's going to lead to him being beat, him being spit upon, him being tortured, and then ultimately him hanging on a cross and dying. Jesus knows exactly what's going to happen, but he knows he has to take that cup of judgment. He has to take that cup of pain, that cup of humiliation, that cup of sorrow. He knows he has to take these cups so we don't have to in our place. So when he references that cup, when he says, Father, take this cup, he's not talking about a literal cup. He's talking about the cup of humiliation. You see, Jesus knew he had to drink the cup of humiliation so that we could drink the cup of salvation. 
Jesus knew there was a payoff there. He knows what's coming and he's dreading the situation. He knows what lies in his future. And we understand why, because we know it's agony, it's suffering. He's in that moment of dread. So we're going to keep reading. Uh, in Matthew, the verses 40 through 44, it keeps going. It says this. It says, He came to the disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, So could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, for the second time, he went away and prayed, My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And again, he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. So leaving them again, he went away and prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. So Jesus is sorrowful to the point of death. We see him literally fall on his face out of a point of agony, out of dreading his situation. And then we see he not only pray at once, but he goes back, finds the disciples sleeping, so he prays it again. Then he goes back, finds them sleeping, so he goes and prays it again. So we see him three times in a row. He doesn't just pray this prayer once. We see him pray this three times in a row. You ever been in that situation where you're like stressing over something, you're freaking out, you're like, oh gosh, how am I going to deal with that? What's going to go on? So you go and we pray and you say amen, you're like, all right, I'm ready to go. You get about two steps, you're like, just kidding, I'm going to go pray a couple more times because I need more. And so you pray multiple times, right? We see Jesus is dreading this situation. This shows how much agony, how much worry, how much Jesus is going through because he's like, God, please take this over and over and over. And God, if there, help me out with this situation. I need your assistance here. We understand that Jesus is going through dread. And we've been in a Matthew a lot. We're going to stay in Matthew most of the day. But what I love about the Bible is the four Gospels, they're four different stories of a lot of time, the same stories in all four Gospels. But it's wrote by different people, so we get different perspectives. Well, I want to switch over to Luke for one verse. Luke, the Gospel of Luke was wrote by Luke, who was a physician. So it makes sense. A lot of his verses are a little bit more medical, right? He uses a little bit more medical terms. And so in Luke twenty-two forty-four, about the situation, here's what he says. He says, "...and being in agony, he prayed more earnestly." And his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. If you haven't been able to see what Jesus is going through, I hope this does it for you. I hope this lets you see exactly what's happening. Jesus fell on his face out of dreading the situation. Jesus knows he is about to die. He knows he's about to go on the cross and bear the weight of every single sin that will ever be made. He knows what he's about to go through. And he's worried about it. He's dreading it. He's saying, God, if there's any other way, take it. But if not, there's any other way. All right, your will be done. This act of sweating blood, it isn't just something that we see in Jesus. It's actually a real condition. It's called hematoidrosis. Um, the National Organization of Rare Diseases define it this way. It says it's a rare condition characterized by blood oozing from intact skin. I know that's a little gross, a little gross to read. But what it is, it's where you sweat blood. It's a real condition. And so there's actually moments throughout history before and after Jesus where we see people with hematoidrosis. Um, a person by the name of Jocelyn Duffin, who was a medical historian, which is someone who writes about medical diseases throughout history, wrote an article all about hematoidrosis. And so he wrote this article, and the first place that he found someone mentioned, someone sweating blood, was found in the author Aristotle. He's a famous philosopher. He wrote, Aristotle wrote that there were people from a catic state who were sweating drops of blood. Aristotle wrote that 300 years before Jesus Christ was even born. So we see this condition before Jesus was born. Duffin went on to write about multiple different cases. He wrote about in the 1600s, a Belgian man who was sentenced to death, and right before his execution, he started sweating blood. Then he wrote about in 2017, there was an Indian woman who had suffered from stress disorders, suffered from anxiety, from severe anxious disorders and anxious diseases. She suffered with this, and all of a sudden one day, she started sweating blood profusely, really bad. So doctors ran tests, they ran exams, they couldn't find anything physically wrong with her, so they labeled it hematoidrosis. You see, Duffin out, went through his case, and he, he put apart, and he talked about a bunch of different people who suffered with this. 
I just highlighted three, but he wrote about a bunch. And you know what he found with almost every single one of those people, what was in common between all of them? He found that almost every single one of them was suffering from extreme stress. Almost every single person who suffered with this, who sweat blood, was suffering from extreme stress. And then he also goes on and he says that over half the people he sees with this disease had death was a near possibility, a very real chance that they were going to die in the immediate future. You see what I'm getting at? Jesus Christ was in this situation. He knows what's coming. He's dreading it future. He falls on his face. He's saying, God, if there's any other way, take this away from me. He says, if there's any other way, take this cup away from me. But what does he do? Hey, then we see him show physical signs of what people do before and after him all throughout history. Signs that people who are under stress and are about to die shows those exact same signs. Jesus knew exactly what was coming. He, this is agony. This is real. This is a real thing that he's going through, and he understands that. Look, I don't know about you, but I've been in spots where I stress. I've been in spots where I've gone through, and I'm like, God, if you don't, make, if you don't allow me to get through this, I don't know what I'm going to do. I've never sweat blood like that, but we understand what agony is. We understand what dread is. And so why am I talking about all this? Why am I bringing it up? It's kind of heavy. You're probably like, where is he going with this? What is going on? Here's the thing. I think every single one in this room understands what it's like to go through a time where you know something hard is really soon. You know pain is in the future. You know suffering is right there. There's a time where all of us know that's coming. Some of us in this room are in that moment right now as we're speaking. And I think there's a perfect opportunity that Jesus out, uh, outlines the steps for us to be, be able to experience God's comfort. And so today what we're going to do is I'm going to go through and I'm going to give you three simple steps that Jesus shows us in this passage of how we can experience God's comfort in the middle of that dread, in the middle of that pain. So step number one, recognize that your Savior understands your pain. Amen. Recognize your Savior understands your pain in your deepest valleys in your hardest situations, in the middle of your storm, in the middle of everything you go through, Jesus is walking alongside of you, not only as the Son of God, but as the Son of Man. As the Son of Man who understands the pain you're going through. He understands exactly what you're going through. He knows the feelings you're feeling. Oftentimes what hurts our pain and what escalates our pain is the thought of going through it alone, right? There's a stat that as of 2017, people who I classify and identify as lonely have a 26% chance increased likely odds of dying early. Loneliness, just saying I'm lonely can make us die earlier in our life. Being lonely, you know what Jesus also understands? Jesus doesn't, also, doesn't only understand our dread. He doesn't only understand our suffering. He understands our loneliness. I mean, think back to this situation in the garden. Jesus, let's think about the real situation he's in. He's sweating blood. He's dreading this. This is a legit moment. He is in a moment of pain. And where's his friends at? They're over there sleeping, right? It's like he's in the moment where he needs comfort. He needs people. He's praying to God, and his friends are over there by themselves. Jesus knows loneliness. And then fast forward, think about the cross. When he's up on the cross, nailed to that cross, dying for our sins, where's the disciples? What, one of them is there? Two of them is there? The rest are run away? Jesus understands loneliness. On that cross, when he's bearing the sin of the world, even his father, even God, had to turn his eyes away from Jesus for a second while that sin was there. Jesus understands your pain. So when you're going through the storm, when you're going through those battles, when you see this battle is coming up and you're like, there it is, I got to get ready for it. I find comfort knowing that Jesus, your Savior, understands your pain. And then step number two, receive the victory that Jesus brings. Did you hear what Jesus told his disciples after he found them sleeping? We read it in verse 41. Here it is again. 
said, watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And so he had Peter and James and John stay back a little bit. He went and prayed three different times, and every time he came back and found them sleeping. When he woke up once, he even said, Peter, what are you doing? You can't stay awake with me for one hour? What are you, what are you doing? And I'm not going to lie, when I first read this, I was hardcore judging the disciples. I'm like, you're here with the Son of God, and you can't stay awake while he's praying. He's sweating blood, and you're over here chilling, taking a nap. What is going on? Then I got to thinking, the Bible kind of outlines, or he, he tells us that they're praying throughout the night. So this isn't like 2 p.m. This isn't in the morning. This is like 3 o'clock, middle of the night. You ever been to one of those all-night prayers, those like prayer sessions throughout the night? I'll be honest with you, I'm 0 for 3 at staying awake at one of those. I went to three different ones. Fell asleep every single time, right? So when I read this, we read and we see that the disciples are there. And you can be quick to think like, oh, how are you going to stay asleep? What are you doing? Pray with Jesus. Be there for him. No, I'd fall asleep 100% too. So we got to show understanding there. But Jesus comes to him and he's like, hey, let's fight the temptation to, stay, to go to sleep. Let's fight that temptation. But I think what Jesus is saying, he's not really saying, hey, stay awake. I think he's given us a larger challenge than that. I heard this phrase one time in this quote that I think is super powerful. It says this. Temptation hits us hardest where we're most vulnerable. Temptation hits us hardest where we're most vulnerable. That means the areas that we're most vulnerable in our life, where we're weakest in, oftentimes we get attacked there the most. You know when you're most vulnerable? When you're tired. And I don't mean tired like going to sleep. I mean tired from fighting. You ever been to that phase? There's a super long battle and you're just like, I'm tired. God, if you don't give me rest, if you don't show me a way out, I'm going to lose hope. I'm going to lose faith. Help me in this situation. Anyone else ever been there? Think of it kind of like a soldier movie. You ever watch one of those soldier movies? I love them, like Braveheart. Like day one of the battle, you're ready to go at. They're like, yeah, running in the battle, right? They're ready to go. They got their armors all nice. Their ammo's full. Their weapons are ready to go. Day one's easy to, hold, to be strong in a battle, isn't it? Day one's really easy to hold faith. Fast forward to day 10. Fast forward two weeks or three weeks into the fight. What's it look like? It's a lot different outlook, isn't it? It's like, oh gosh, please let me in this. Someone gave up already. I'm tired of this, right? It's a lot easier to give up. The longer you're in a battle, the easier it is to lose faith. Well, I'll be honest with you. My family and I, I'll tell you a little story. My family and I went through a moment like this that was very similar a couple months back. So a couple months ago, or it was a little bit longer than that, I had a family member. My aunt and uncle actually got diagnosed with COVID, as so many other people did. When I say this, this isn't something unique to my family. So many people hurt like this. I'm just going to tell you our perspective. So my aunt and uncle got diagnosed with COVID. Um, after a couple days, their symptoms should have got better, but it actually, they both digressed. And so they actually both had to be hospitalized. Um, after a couple days in the hospital, my uncle was healed, was able to go home and recover there. But my aunt con- continued to get worse. And eventually got to the point where she was put on a ventilator. I'll be honest with you, day one of that ventilator, we were scared. Understandably, right? We were scared, but we also had faith. Day one, we were like, God, you're going to heal this. This is in your hand. Our trust is in you. Everything that you have is under you. We are going to trust you to bring us through this situation and heal her. Heal her physically as you healed our uncle. Day one, we were scared. I'm not even going to say we weren't. We were scared. We were nervous, but we had faith. We were ready for it. Days turned into weeks. Weeks turned into more weeks. And after day 20 of her being on a ventilator, 100% transparency, it was hard. It was hard to keep that faith. We trust that God is always going to bring restoration, right? We all know that. But oftentimes when we're praying for restoration, we're praying for physical healing. And we were praying, our family was faithfully praying, God, heal her on this earth. Day 20, that fear became so real that we were like, all right, God, maybe you're going to heal her and that eternal restoration, that eternal healing is going to take place when you take her to heaven. We were afraid we were going to lose her. 
After 21 days on a ventilator, luckily God healed her. She came off the ventilator, and it was great. She's now made a full recovery. She's actually in the back running slides right now. It's my Aunt Kelly. Absolutely. We are so thankful for that. But let me tell you, I'll be honest. My family's faith in those moments is one of the most inspiring things that I've ever seen. If you ask my Aunt Kelly what happened, you know what she's going to say? God healed me. If you ask my uncle what happened, you know what he's going to say? God healed us. Every single person in my family, my grandma, my grandpa, my mom, every single one, their faith that they never lost how God was going to bring them through in the middle of that battle is inspiring. I promise you this. No matter what storm you're facing, no matter what journey you're facing, no matter what pain is in your future, Jesus has already claimed the victory of it. We can receive the victory that he brings. I will say this. I'm going to go, hi, woo, yeah, get excited. Not every victory lines up with what we want victory to be, though. Not every time we experience what we want as victory is not always going to be what God's plan is. I mean, think about the disciples. The disciples, what was victory for them? It wasn't the cross. Victory for them wasn't an empty grave. There shouldn't have been a grave. Victory for them was Jesus coming in and throwing up the whole town, turning things over, right? Luckily, in our family's sake, our plan for victory lined up perfectly with God's plan. But that's not the case every single time. And that leads us to our third point. Trust in God's purpose through the pain. In order to experience comfort, you have to trust in God's purpose through the pain. Let's look back at that prayer that Jesus prayed one more time. Jesus prayed, he said, If it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Jesus understood the pain that was happening. The pain's real. We're not downplaying the pain. We're not ignoring it. The pain is 100% real. You're going through it. It hurts. Jesus was going through it. It hurt. He was agonizing. He was suffering. He was in pain. He knew what was in the future, and he was sweating blood from it. Jesus knew there was pain, but you know why he made it through it? It's because he trusted and he understood that God's purpose was so much more than his pain. Remember that cup. Jesus took the cup of humiliation. Jesus took the cup of loneliness. Jesus took the cup of judgment. Jesus took the cup of pain. Jesus took the cup of sorrow so that we could take the cup of salvation. God's purpose was bigger than the pain. As you're going through storms, as you're going through it, trust God's purpose. Let me ask you this question. Where's your trust at? I mean, if I asked you, do you trust God? Every single person in here would be like, yeah, I trust God, right? Yes. But in the middle of the storms, where's your trust? Is your trust in what you can find on Google? Is your trust in the doctors? Is your trust in family? Is your trust in friends? Some of those things are great, right? We are so thankful for the amazing doctors and nurses in this community. We're thankful for family and for friends and the comfort they can bring. But if your trust isn't completely and entirely in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, then you're going to be let down. When you're in the middle of the storms, when you're in the middle of those battles, we can experience comfort by recognizing our Savior understands our pain, by receiving the victory that Jesus brings, and then by trusting in God's purpose through the pain. Today I'm wrapping up, and I just want to encourage you in this. I want to encourage you. Jesus went through every single thing he went through. Jesus went through that pain. Jesus went through that trouble. Jesus went through that sorrow. He went through everything he went through because he loves each and every one of you. Jesus took the cup of humiliation so you could have the chance to repent and accept the cup of salvation. Jesus saw that your purpose for your life was greater than the pain he was going through. That's why he went through that. You can experience the comfort that God gives us by resting in God 
by trusting in Jesus. Everyone close your eyes and bow your head, if you will. I don't want to skip this opportunity. Maybe there's someone out there who you've never accepted Jesus as your Lord. You've never took that next step of saying, Jesus, you're mine. Jesus, I accept you. Jesus, I'm for yours. I'll follow you forever. If you've never said yes to Jesus as being your Lord, I'm not going to embarrass you. I'm not going to make you stand up. I'm not going to make you walk up here. All I want you to ask you to do is will you just simply raise a hand? I just want to pray for you. That's it. If you'll just raise your hand if you've never accepted Jesus as your Lord. Awesome. That's amazing. Yeah, we celebrate that. That's awesome. Now, in a second, if you raise your hand, we're going to pray. But before we do that, if you could do me a favor, others of you, you're trusting in Jesus. You know Jesus is your Savior. But there's still some hurt. There's still some pain. There's some struggles. There's some storms. There's some journeys lying ahead. If you just really could experience God's comfort, if you could really just use God's comfort on your life, will you just raise a hand? I just want to pray for you. Absolutely. Hands are up everywhere. That's awesome. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to pray. If you raised your hand to accept Jesus for the first time today, we just repeat these simple words after me. The church is going to help us pray. This, the prayer doesn't save you. The trust in Jesus and the repentance saves you. So if you could just say, repeat after me with this. Dear God, thank you for loving me. Thank you for enduring the pain. Starting today, I say no to my past. I say no to my sins. I say no to temptation. And I say yes to you. God, I trust in you. And I give you my life. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Dear God, I pray for every single person in this room. I pray that there is some real pain. There is some real suffering. There is some dread that's happening in this room. And that they're going through. And God, I just pray that every single person that's in this room and watching with us online, God, I pray that they be able to experience your comfort. God, I pray that they be able to sense your presence, sense your peace, sense your love, fill your arms, wrap around them, and give them the sense of comfort. God, I pray that in the middle of the storms, no matter how deep the valleys, no matter how hard the storm's hitting us, we'd be able to rest in that fact of knowing that you love us so much to give us a chance to repent and accept salvation. God, we pray this thing in all your name. Amen. Amen. Hey, before we go into our time of worship, we thought it'd be really cool if we just took part in a time of communion together. Um, But before we take communion, it's super important to prepare ourselves, right? Super important. This is a huge moment. Communion is a time you don't have to be a member here. You simply just have to love Jesus to be a part of communion. That's it. But a communion is a time where we come and we grow closer together, together as one, but also a time where we remember the sacrifice that Jesus made for us. So before we take part in communion, I really want to prepare our hearts by doing something we used to do, but we haven't done it in a long time. But I just want us to stand, if you will, stand, and we're going to read the Apostles' Creed with all together as one church. The Apostles' Creed is one of the longest traditions we have as a Christian church that just outlines what we believe, why we believe it, and it's a great opportunity to prepare our hearts to accept communion. So it'll be up on the screen. We're all just going to read it together, and it starts like this. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to hell. The third day He rose again from the dead. He ascended to heaven. He is seated at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. From there He will come to judge the living and the dead. 
I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. You can go ahead and open up your communion cups if you haven't already. At that last supper, Jesus Christ, he went and he stood in front of his disciples and he held up a piece of bread. He said, when you take this bread, do so in remembrance of me. Today, when we take this bread, let it be remembrant of that sacrifice that Jesus made. Remember how his body was broke so we could experience eternal life with him. Remember the judgment, the beatings that he took, the spit upon, the mocking he took. Remember how he willingly took that cup and was broken so we could experience salvation. You can take the cup or the bread. After that, he took a a cup and he said, when you take this cup, when you drink this juice, do so in remembrance of me. Today, when we take this cup, remember how Jesus willingly took that cup. How Jesus was sweating blood, how he was agonizing, he was dreading. He knew what was coming. He knew the severity. He knew the pain. He knew every single thing he was going through. And instead of going out of it, instead of using what he could have done and escaped it, he willingly took that cup of humiliation so we could take the cup of salvation. Remember the pain and sacrifice that Jesus made. You can drink. Now, I like when Pastor Andy comes out and he says, I'm going to bless you out. I like that. That's my favorite. Uh, if you will, just go ahead and extend your hands. I'm going to pray this blessing over you. It's from Romans 15, 13. It says, May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him, so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Now I commission you to go, take the comfort, take the love of Christ and the gospel of Jesus everywhere you go. Make disciples of people. Awesome. It's been a great day. Thank you so much. We're so glad you're here. We'll see you next week. Thanks so much for listening to this week's Upward Journey. If you would like to find out more about Upward Christian Fellowship in Flat Rock, North Carolina, you can look up our website at ucf.cc or like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash Upward Christian Fellowship. We invite you to join us next week as we continue the Upward Journey.